That is a great, great song. If you're in Christ, you're going to be doing that. If you're not in Christ, you're going to be doing that. But I think one's going to enjoy bowing down more than the other. So we might want to start singing that a little bit more. Have you ever been to Ricketts Glen State Park? Who's been there? How many of you were so enamored with the view of that place that you went back? Very, very few of you. We have an enamoring deficit in this church. (laughs) This morning is going to resemble what happens in the Ackley family sometimes. We're a camping family. And we like to camp and we like to go to places that are unbelievably beautiful and majestic. And the thing that we like to do is finding a place that just seems to stir our soul and then go back there again. And when we do that, almost always something new strikes us that we missed the first time. This morning, we are going to complete the series, Becoming a People of Prayer. The look that we have taken into the Lord's teaching on prayer. But I want to do a review this morning. And I'm going to rush through. I'm going to try to take all of the main points and the highlights that we, we hit and that we saw, the vistas, the dropping um, gorges of this incredible prayer. I'm going to try to consolidate that and bring that to you this morning. But I'm going to encourage you, if you feel so inclined, hit our website. Every sermon that I preached in this series is on there, including, some of you might like this, my own notes that I preach from that has my footnotes, the resources that I use. So if you want to find out more of what makes my mind tick, which I think some of you are trying to figure out, good luck. You might be able to get some uh, inroads on that, that sermon series on the website. So here we are. You ready? I know some of you think this is a yawner, this is a snoozer, This is not. This is very, very important this morning. And I am excited that I could go back through this Lord's teaching on prayer and bring you back in touch with the road that we traveled. You remember those African converts who each had their own special place outside the village where they would go to pray in solitude? And the ways to those places became special footpaths through the brush, and when grass began to grow, now get this imagery, this is a true story, when grass began to grow over one of these trails, it became evident that the person to whom it belonged was not praying very much. And these new Christians, because they loved one another because of the hour in the Lord's teaching of prayer, because they were concerned for one another, when noticing overgrown paths, they would go to that person and they would lovingly warn them with this statement, friend, there is grass on your path. Let me ask you, friends, this morning, is there grass on your path? I find that an extremely relevant Question to ask as a pastor and completely within the bounds of what I ought to be asking. And what we ought to be asking one another. Because, friends, we struggle in prayer. I struggle in prayer. 
I honestly don't know anyone, I'm sure there are people in this church that don't fit this category, but I don't know anybody in our church that does not struggle with prayer. How about the elite on the board? Just did a survey. And all but one of our board members admitted that they're struggling in prayer. I think you're struggling in prayer, at least most of you. And when we struggle in prayer, let me tell you what will always happen. You can mark it down. You can anchor this into your mind as a truism. When we struggle in prayer, friends, we will always lose the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of God. That's a given. And prayer begins this recovery process by lifting our eyes back onto the heights of God's glory and centering us in the God who cares for us with tenderness and concern and power. You know what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said? He said this. He said, man is never greater. You hear this? Man is never greater than when he is there in communion and contact with God. You want a life of greatness? Honestly, do you want a life of greatness? You can't attain it if we don't learn how to pray. It's that urgent. And so we launched into this series and we saw quickly because it made us halt at the very first word called our. It's a little pronoun. And I remember giving you this poem. You remember this, right? You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. If God is our Father then that makes us, I know some of you are going to shudder, and makes us brothers and sisters. Is there anybody in this church you don't like? Friends, our unites us in biblical fellowship. Have you spent more time as a result of this series in prayer Praying for others. Are you encouraging others to pray? Are you teaching others to pray? That's why there is no I, me, or my in the Lord's teaching and prayer. It's part of what makes us redemptive community. It's part of how we live out the family of God, children of our Heavenly Father. What's that mean that God is our Father? Friends, if we can understand Even this one doctrine, it will free our lives. See, God's finger's not poised over some cosmic smite button ready to inflict suffering on his children the moment that we step out of line. Yes, God disciplines his children, but Hebrews and other scriptures tells us that his motivation to do so is his great love for us, not his vindictive wrath for his people. We are the adopted children of God. And as J.I. Packer wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God 
as his father. Did you know that the New Testament gives us two yardsticks to measure the extent of God's love? The one that we all know is the facsimile that's hanging above my head. It's the cross. We all know that the cross is the icon that when you click on it, you see the love of God in its full, stunning glory. But there's another one. And most of us don't see it. And though it's lesser known, it's still as powerful. And it's called adoption. Our father always desires the company of his children. He's always accessible to his children. He's never too preoccupied to listen to his children. I don't know about you, those of you who are growing long in the tooth. That was as nice as I could say that, by the way. I don't know any other more politically. I mean, you come through a political season and it sort of changes your vocabulary. Forget it. Those who are old and wise in years, are you like my father? Because before he died and we had two children, my dad had a threshold. And when we would be around him with our children, we could watch his knees start to go up and down and his foot begin to go side to side. And all of a sudden, either we would catch on that my dad was overwhelmed with the noise and we would take our children to a different area of the home, or my dad would conveniently find something to do outside. He couldn't handle being around children, and that's often the case with those who are elderly. But God's never like that. God's never too preoccupied to spend time with his children. His children are always able to find access to him because we're God's heirs. You know that, right? We're God's heirs. Guess what that means? If you're God's heir, then you're his son's co-heir, which means that all of the promises, all of the blessings of Jesus Christ, we share. This is the doctrine, friends, of adoption. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the guarantor. He's the divine deposit of our inheritance. You are as assured of your inheritance in Christ as that cross is a symbol of his love. We could cry out and praise that our heavenly dad is magnificent. Did anybody ever read that book since I mentioned it? It's one of my favorite books. You know, that son of his father who gets in an arguing match with his friend about whose dad is more magnificent. And so the son starts telling tall tales to his friend Alex about all these incredible exploits of his father. And none of it's true. But when Alex goes home after discovering the truth and his son's deflated, all of a sudden his dad picks him up and he walks his feet on the ceiling and he spends time making pancakes. Friends, our dad in heaven, our heavenly father, our Abba father will always loom larger than the tall tales. There is no tale that can catch the height of his love for his kids. He's our father in heaven. And that does a wonderful thing to our vision. You know what it does? When you grasp the fatherhood of God, it takes your eyes and moves it up because you know he dwells 
in heaven. It turns your eyes upward to our transcendent God. Yes, he's our father in heaven, but that doesn't minimize his holiness, his greatness. He's over all, which is what the word transcendent means. He's great and he's mighty. He's infinite. There's no God. There's no power. There's no authority that exists higher than our God. He inhabits the very center of all there is, and the throne seat of authority is his own personal chair. But that word heaven not only turns our eyes upward, it turns our eyes inward to our own humility, our own transparency, our Father who loves us. He sees everything we do. He sees everything we think. He hears everything. Thing we say, friends, there can't be any charades in our prayer. I cannot make myself appear better with God. I might manage it with you because you can't see my heart. But I can't do that with God. What is in my heart is utterly in all perfect clarity right before his eyes. And the truth that he's our loving father who sees all drives us to voluntary truthfulness. Have you learned about voluntary truthfulness? God, if you can see everything, I might as well be honest with you. I'm really angry. I'm really struggling. I really don't want to worship you, God. I really need your help. It's voluntary truthfulness. And our eyes are drawn forward. They're not only drawn upward. They're not only drawn inward with the greatness of God. They're drawn forward because he's the father who presides in heaven. Do you remember Florence Chadwick? Who in 1952 stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina Island, determined to swim into the shore of mainland California. You see, she'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats that were right next to her. And still, she swam for 15 long hours. And when she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, situated in a boat right to her side with maternal love and watching over her, told her she was close. Florence, keep swimming. You can make it. But finally, exhausted, Physically and emotionally, she stopped swimming and she was pulled out of the water and into the boat. It wasn't until, friends, she was in the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. That's what this prayer does, is it gives your eyes the clarity to see the shore, to see the eternal element of heaven. To pray to our Father, friends, is to move our eyes to an eternal perspective. You remember what C.S. Lewis said? He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven, friends, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Praying to our Father in heaven 
moves our eyes upward to his greatness, inward to our smallness, and forward to the joy-filled eternity that lies before us. But friend, we got a problem. And Jesus knows this. And the problem is that for many of us, we are spiritual haolis. Do you remember that word? It's a word the Hawaiians would call people from the mainland. But it originated in a story like this. Before the missionaries came, my people used to sit outside their temples for a long time, meditating, preparing themselves before entering. Then they would virtually creep to the altar to offer their petition and afterwards would again sit a long time outside, this time to breathe life into their prayers. But the Christians... The missionaries, when they came, they just got up, uttered a few sentences, and said amen, and we're done. And for that reason, my people called them haolis without breath, or those who failed to breathe life into their prayers. Friends, many of us are spiritually oxygen-deprived. We have no breath What is the cure? Well, Jesus tells us we need to ask that God's name would be hallowed. You want breath in your prayers, then learn to hallow God's name. What's that mean? Well, we pointed out it means to recognize and treat God as holy. That's what it means when you say this prayer, which you probably have done hundreds of times in your life and never ever known what the archaic word hallowed meant. It means this. It means to recognize and treat God's name as holy. His name is holy, which is tremendously significant. God's names, friends, in all of scripture revealed aspects of his being his character, his nature, and his personality. There is no greater name for God than who? Jesus Christ. That's why John says, I have manifested, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Martin Luther answered the question of how we hallow God's name. Don't you want to know? How do I hallow God's name? Well, he tells us, Luther does. He says, when both our life, what we do, how we live, and our doctrine, what we believe, how we approach God, when both our life and doctrine are truly Christian, we will hallow God's name. If we want to breathe life into our prayers, then we need to learn to hallow God's name. Lord, hallowed be your name. Help me live. Now get this, help me live in such a way that my life reveals your greatness. You know what happened with my sister-in-law? My wife has a twin sister. And she was up here visiting with her family a few months ago over the summer. And while she was here, she suffered just agonizing tooth pain. Well, guess what? We've got somebody in our church that's a dentist. And so I called them up and I said, listen, is there any way that you can visit my sister-in-law? And I've got to be honest with you. We'll pay for it because she has no money. They're very, very poor. He says, bring her in. He had her. He had his 
office manager schedule her that day. And he brought her in and he treated her and he sent her out with no bill. And you know what she did? And this is why I'm telling you this story. She came back home and she first commented on how gentle, how caring this man was. And then she said this, and friends, this is how we hallow God's name with our lives. She said, you know what? God is doing something in your church because it's incredible that he would see me like this. Friends, that dentist lived out the free grace and mercy that is God's ever-present heartbeat, and he applied it towards a sister in Christ, and it made her eyes move upward to how great God is, not the dentist. May our reputation enhance God's reputation, and may his fame be increased in the world by the way I live my life. Hallowed be your name, God, in my business. The way I steward my money. The way that I speak. The way that I'm a friend. And my family, the way that I parent. And my marriage, my thought life, my neighborhood, and even, Lord, my church. But Jesus goes on, the second request he teaches us is to ask that God's kingdom would come. You know what that means? It means to ask God to bring his reign on earth. That's what kingdom means. Your reign on earth, bring it, God, to its fullest conclusion. It means turn those who still live in sin. Friends, do you know anybody that is still apart from Christ, still has not turned to him in faith? Then when you pray your kingdom come, what you're praying is God use me, use whatever you want to use, but bring this man, this woman, this child into your kingdom. But it's not only a request for the unsaved, it's including the children of God as well. God, give me a greater understanding of your kingdom. What's it mean to live in your kingdom? Give me a greater desire to see you reign. Do you desire God's reign? Now, let me ask you that in all seriousness. Do you really desire sovereign God to have absolute sway over your calendar and over your checkbook and over your relationships? I don't know about you, but I know few people who really want that. So, Lord, this is a prayer that you would let me, help me, give me a desire that your reign over me would be complete. Bring history to its end. Send back your your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Usher in the fullness of your kingdom. So we're to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what Martin Luther called this prayer? You better listen to this. Because I think he's right. He called this a fearful prayer. You know why Martin Luther called this a fearful prayer? Because it is a prayer that puts us right in the center of God's refining, purifying sights. You know, when I counsel couples... They want their spouse's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And this is not a prayer that the other person's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. As much, it is that, but it's not as much that as it is let my will, let your will rather be done in me on earth as it is in heaven. Because our squirming friends, you're with me, our sin-saddled flesh consistently, powerfully seeks to do our own wills rather than God. So when we pray, your will be done, we're praying that God's will becomes our will. God doesn't want just obedience. Did you know that? God just doesn't want us to obey Him. Even if we don't feel like it, God wants us to want to obey Him. And He works in us changing our desires to His desires. This is a prayer of active participation in God's will, not passive resignation. By the way, it's how his will is done in heaven. How do you know, Pastor Tim? You've never been there. Psalm 103 tells us, look at what it says. We we saw this. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. The angels' overriding desire was to bless the Lord, their motives, their expectations, their dreams, their desires was to bless and glorify, honor, and bestow on God their favor. But look, out of that heart, watch how the angels lived. They did his word. They obeyed the voice of his word. That's what God is asking from us in this prayer. Ask me, I will change your heart. I don't want your begrudging obedience. I can get sacrifices from anybody else in Psalm 51. I want your heart's uprightness, contriteness. I want you to want to obey, and I'm willing to help you do it. How? How can our hearts change to want to obey the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, ushering in the kingdom, making his name great because he's our father who loves us and we're stuck, like you, whether you like it or not in community, how can that happen? It's because God gives us daily bread. Now, do you remember talking about daily bread? I bet most of us have thought daily bread was just the physical things we needed in life. And it is that. But it's more than that. It's bread that we cannot provide ourselves with. There's no generic equivalent. There's no substitute. There's no knockoff brand. There's no other source. The words us and our make it clear that when God does provide this bread, it's so that he can provide through his people bread to those in need. We know all of this about this, but what really is this bread? Well, it is the physical sustenance that we need to live. It is both physical food. It is the money to pay our bills and live responsibly. It is what we need physically, health-wise, sleep-wise, in order to live out God's will. It is that, but it's more. As Augustine said, it's spiritual food, namely the divine precepts. That's code word for his word. This is daily bread for the heart. He says it's the divine precepts which we are to think over and to put into practice each day. Friends, in praying for daily bread, we are asking that God would fulfill all our needs, physical, life's necessities, spiritual strength, so that we can best follow His will. And guess what? 
Guess what? Nowhere, in my opinion, is it harder to follow God's will than when he tells us to forgive. He forgives our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is hard to forgive those who, who hurt us and sin against us. In fact, friends, listen, an unforgiving spirit, I think, is one of the most common short circuits of grace. And mo- almost every church splits. In almost every church split, the very root of the problem is unforgiveness. It's one of the biggest threats to God's community. We learned that asking God to forgive us our debts, it's not a prayer for salvation. This is a prayer, the Lord's Prayer, for believers. And only believers can meaningfully pray it. Rather, debts are the continuing sins that all believers continue to commit. And we saw that in the beautiful metaphor that Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room. Peter, give me your feet. It's time for me to wash them. No, Lord, I will not let you wash my feet. Peter, give me your feet or you cannot be clean. For though your body is clean, your feet are filthy. You know what that means, friends? We're justified in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are righteous in his eyes. But like me, you walk through a world of muck. Did you sin this week? Did your mouth slander? Did your heart lust and covet and have jealousy and envy? Were you impatient with your children? Did you not do what you knew you ought to do? Our feet get dirty. And it's through the biblical act of confession where we hold those feet to Christ. And if we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But shockingly, Jesus guides us to pray, here it is, that God would forgive us in the same way we forgive others, which is why Augustine said this is the terrible petition. It's why Spurgeon wrote, unless you've forgiven others, I love this, then you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever looked at the Lord's Prayer like that? It's foolish to confess our sins And ask God to cleanse us from unrighteousness if we refuse to forgive others. If we will not forgive others, if we hold on to our grudges and we bar them from the grace and fellowship of our lives, friends, the Bible says, then we will be barred from the sweet fellowship of our Father. Yet a believer, but not in his favor. The proof of our adoption as God's children is a glad willingness to give the same grace and mercy to others that we have received in such large quantity from the Father. Is it any wonder, now think with me, is it any any wonder then why those who have a bitter, resentful, unforgiving spirit find temptation raging in their hearts? This is where Jesus leads us. Temptation comes in all shapes and sizes. An important part of prayer is asking our Heavenly Father for help in order to resist it. 
We are to ask for protection from our enemy who roars like a lion seeking to devour us. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You remember, don't you, that that word temptation has two possible meanings? One of them is a difficult trial, but the other meaning of the word temptation is it's a solicitation to do evil. You see, what we learned is God is holy. God is never, can never going to tempt us. He's not able to tempt us. He cannot make us want to sin. Yes, he allows, and yes, he sometimes sends tests and trials, but he sends them in order to prove our faith genuine. He wants us to succeed. God wants us to be victorious. He wants our faith to emerge healthy and intact. But listen, Satan, Satan seduces us to evil. Satan never wants us to succeed. Satan always wants to prove our faith weak and false. So God helps us, and we saw that he does that by delivering us. Do you remember that word deliver? It doesn't mean just rescuing someone. Here I am, I've got a life ring, and somebody's in the water that can't sing and swim, and I throw it to them, and they grab hold of them. That's a rescue attempt, but that's not all of what God does. He throws it to them, and he grabs the rope, and he pulls it to him, and he brings them out of the water, he dries them off, he puts them back on their feet, and he gives them encouragement and comfort to live. That's what that word means. It means to draw to one side, to bring to yourself. Isn't it ironic that the word Satan, friends, you better know this, your enemy's name means one who separates. He wants marriages to be fighting because then your marriages draw apart and they draw apart from God at the same time. But God brings us and he rescues us and he draws us to himself away from Satan where we are safe and secure. Finally, last week, we looked at the doxology and praise and saw that we need to learn to live the amen of Scripture. We praise God for His sovereignty. It's His kingdom and He rules over it. And He rules over it with power, dunamis, explosive power that can bring all things under His will And he does that for his own glory, his own fame, and his own honor. And he displays that when he's present among his people and when he demonstrates his own qualities. Friends, how do you give God God glory? Well, we give God glory when we live out the amen of Scripture. Remember what that amen word means? It means in the New Testament, it is so. In other words, it's the affirmation that all the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, isn't this amazing? We can pray the truths and the principles found in this prayer with faith-filled confidence. Because we know that all the promises of God are already ours with the victory of Christ on the cross. Friends, this series has been an absolute eye-opening experience for me. I have said, like you, the Lord's Prayer hundreds of times since I was a little kid. I had no idea the power packed into this these few verses. It's why Henry Ward Beecher said this. He said, I used to think 
The Lord's Prayer was a short prayer, but as I live longer and see more of life, I believe there is no such thing as getting through it. If a man, in praying that prayer, were to be stopped by every word until he had thoroughly prayed it, it would take him a lifetime. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to do something that we really don't normally do. I've held off doing this because I don't want to recite the Lord's Prayer together until we understood what it was saying, or at least more of it. We're going to close our worship service this morning, and I'm going to ask you to read this prayer with me out loud and interject the truth, the meaning, the affirmation, the promises, the insight, the amen, the it is so, right into it, what I've just taught you. Would you do that this morning? And then we'll close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the truth that is embedded in that prayer. It is the prayer containing everything we need. Lord, let us study it. Let us further meditate on it. Let us incorporate it into our lives. Let us pray it, not to learn to pray it by rote memory, but with significant passion. Lord, I thank you that you have put us in a family together. Lord, it's not a solo effort. We would fail if it was. Help us to learn what it is to be in biblical fellowship. And let us see, Lord, the adoption that we are, our sons and daughters, as sons and daughters of our Father. Lord, the great love that you have for us. Lord, the Father in heaven, Lord, let us our eyes look upward and inward and outward, forward, Lord, to our eternal life. And Lord, may we learn to live in a way that will make your name great among those that we live around. Lord, I pray, Father, that your kingdom would come. Lord, it would hasten the day that you would use us to bring people into the kingdom, that we would live faithfully, Lord, that our will would be your will. You would make it your will. Lord, you would adjust our desires so that we live out your will on earth as the angels are doing it now in heaven. Lord, we need your daily bread to do it. We have not the strength. God, there is no other source of help. It is from your word. It is through your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would feed our souls. Give us what we need in this life, Lord, as you did with Terry. Lord, thank you for the apartment. Give us what we need to be able to live responsibly and obediently to you. Lord, I thank you for the strength, Lord, that you give us to forgive other people when we see the Mount Everest of grace that you have given to us, Lord. How can we withhold it? Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from Satan who wants to separate us from you, separate us from one another, and, Lord, that you would bring us to your side, draw us to yourself, strengthen us, deliver us, rescue us. And, Lord, help us to remember that it's your power, it's your kingdom. Therefore, it's your glory. And let us live for your fame and not ours. Lord, may we rest on the amen of this prayer. It is so. Let us know with confidence that everything written 
is the counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen.